Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. As we begin Bible study this morning, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the last three verses. We read them last week, but we didn't get time to do the commentary on them, because the commentary may well take all day. We shall see. These verses are extremely important to me. Because as you might guess, I'm constantly being asked the question, Wayne, almost every preacher we've ever heard says that the law has been abolished, it's not to be followed. And you're telling us it is. How do you know you're right and they're wrong? Isn't the majority always right? <laughs> well, no, the majority's not always right. What's that? The broad road leads to destruction. So let me read Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22. And then we're going to start delving into it a little more deeply. It says, But the prophet, who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So when people ask, okay, Wayne, you say the Sabbath is still important. The majority say the Sabbath has been abolished. How can we know? Which position is correct? My response is to say, let's go look at Bible prophecy. We can look at history. That's great. We can look at things that were being done contemporaneously and argue over what did they mean. But when you look at Bible prophecy, when it says that the Sabbath will continue forever, then we can know that the scriptures that people use to say, well, It's not in effect anymore. We can know that that argument must fail. First thing I want us to look at is 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm sure I'm not the only person that gets asked these questions, which is why I wanted to take the time to really delve into it today. How do we respond to such things? It's a great question. I think so. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. Preach the what? Not preach the funny stories. The hilarious things that have happened to us. No, preach the word. What word? The word of God. What does the Bible say? That he calls all scripture. That's right. And what was that? Was that the 1611 King James Version? Yes. If you go back yes. even more, it's what he learned from childhood. It's what he learned from childhood. So we mean the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament. Those books that so many preachers in what's called the postmodern church say, ignore those. They're irrelevant. But you know, like, what's really important about that word scripture is that it came from the mouth of God. So if you say scripture is abolished, you're calling God a liar. And that's where we're going to go in a minute. It's 
see. Let me put those on mute. So verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. How are we supposed to teach? What do we teach from? Do we preach from life experiences or do we teach from the word of God? What does it say? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Because there are people who will say, yeah, yeah, okay, but 2 Timothy, Paul was writing to Timothy and he was a pastor. Maybe that doesn't apply to the rest of us. Well, you can't say the same thing about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Let me give you a chance to find it. Comes right before, well, never mind. I told you not to do jokes, so let's not. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So when people say, How do you know that you are going to be saved? We should always be ready to give an answer. Right? Right. And the second principle that I want to establish before we start really digging into Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, is that God does not lie. Let's go first to Numbers 23, verse 19. The reason this principle is so important is if a prophet tells you that God said something and it doesn't come to pass, there's only two possibilities. One, God lied. Or two, the prophet's a false prophet. So Numbers 23, 19 is very clear. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So what is the principle of Numbers 23, 19? God does not lie. So if the prophecy fails, it's not on God. I have heard so many people who claim to be a prophet who will tell a prophecy and when it fails, they'll say, well, God changed his mind. Your cancer is going to be healed. Right. You're going to be wealthy. God changed his mind. Well, let's go to Malachi 3.6. God said it, Abraham believed it, that's it. That ends the inquiry. Very good. Let's go to Malachi 3.6 to answer the question, does God change? In Numbers 23.19, we find that God does not lie. But now we'll go to Malachi 3.6 to see, yeah, but does God change his mind? Come in, folks. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. If we miss Malachi, what's the next book we hit? Matthew. Matthew. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. So from Numbers 23, 19, we know that God does not lie. From Malachi 3, 6, we know the Lord does not change. But does the Lord change his word? Let's go to Psalm 89, verse 34. 
also say if you miss the book of Malachi, you miss some very important principles about the Lord. That's entirely true. Psalm 89, verse 34. For those that have just come in, we're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, as much as it might not sound like it. <laughs> we look first at 2 Timothy 4.2 and 1 Peter 3.15, which together tell us to be ready to give an answer to anyone who comes to say, how can you have hope of salvation? And we looked at Numbers 23.19 to say, God does not lie. Malachi 3, 6, God does not change. And now Psalm 89, verse 34, where God says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So God doesn't lie, God doesn't change, and God does not alter a single word that has gone out of his lips. And we could add to that Matthew 4, 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Which is quoting right from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if we go back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, we see the concept established in the scripture that if a prophet speaks a word that he says is from God, and that word fails to come to pass, did God lie or did the prophet? The prophet. And the prophet's a false prophet. So let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 23. As we talk a little bit about what is a prophecy. A prophecy is speaking forth the word of God. So if I say... You know, I think there may be some precipitation that falls somewhere in the United States in January. Is that a prophecy? No. It's, it's what? It's just common sense. You know, I even call it a prediction that has a really high chance of coming to pass. But if I say, the Lord spoke to me saying, there shall be rain on the 31st of January at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that is a prophecy because I'm saying this came from the Lord. So if you look at Leviticus chapter 23 verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now when Moses speaks forth what God told him is this prophecy. Yes. This is prophecy saying I received this from the Lord and I'm delivering it to you. So let's look at verse 21. From chapter 23? Yes, Leviticus 23, verse 21. Verse 21 is the end of the first four appointed times of the Lord. Passover, when Messiah was to die. Unleavened bread, when he was to be buried. First fruits, when he was to arise. And the Feast of Weeks, when the Holy Spirit was to come. Did it happen? Yes. It happened just as God said it would. The end of verse 21 says, It shall be a statute forever in all your, in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So the word of prophecy is that Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks are to be kept forever. 
What does the traditional church tell you about them? That they've been abolished, they've been done away with. If they've been abolished and done away with, either God lied, and we've just seen God doesn't lie. What's the only other alternative? Is that Moses would be a false prophet. Is Moses a false prophet? No. Then that means Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks have not been abolished. Yes, sir? Wouldn't there have to be a prophecy to say these are going to be abolished when Messiah comes in order for them to be abolished? Yes. If this was written such that when Messiah came, they would cease, it would say, it shall be a statute until Messiah comes. When it says it shall be a statute forever, what does that mean? Forever. Modern theologians would say, Wayne, you're reading it wrong because you're reading the Old Testament first. You should read the New Testament, which tells us it's abolished. Then you'd know that forever didn't mean forever. What does it mean to them? What it means to them is until it stopped. Until it's convenient. Until it's convenient. Where in the New Testament does it say we're not to do Passover anymore? It doesn't. Matter of fact, it says, let us keep the feast of Passover. In fact, it says, let us keep the feast in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is written by the Apostle Paul to a church of believers that came out of the Gentile Gentile world. So if we're not to keep those feasts anymore, then Moses would be a false prophet. Does Messiah refer to Moses as a prophet? So that would be very concerning if Moses is a false prophet and Messiah didn't know it. Everything we believe in would fall apart. You're absolutely correct. Yes, Sam? Wait. Does Ezekiel, um, doesn't he have a vision of the Messiah coming? Yes. Does that mean he's doing these things? Yep, Ezekiel chapter 44 is about the Messianic kingdom when Messiah rules and reigns on earth and we will be keeping the feasts and festivals. We're just beginning. (laughs) And the whole point that we started with this morning is when people come up to us and say, when everybody else says these things are not to be done and you say they are, how do you know you're right? And my answer always is, let's look at prophecy. Because prophecy must come to pass or in big trouble. Yes, Edmund. Um, it just so happens that this morning, and of course I'm five hours ahead of you, um, I was very struck by the thought that, um, you know, people that want to park the Old Testament uh, and just stick to the new, uh, they've got a big problem because on the road to Emmaus, Jesus. Uh, doesn't have the New Testament to work with, and it says he uh, speaks from the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, all the things pertaining to him. Yeah. So it's all there in in, in the Tanakh. And right. Therefore, parking it, Jesus didn't park it. Jesus used it. Right. So Messiah quotes from the what we would call the Old Testament to show that he is, in fact, the Messiah and is fulfilling the prophecies about him. 
What does Peter, Paul, James, and John use to prove their points in the New Testament? Same thing. Same thing. Okay. We looked at verse 21, but we could also have backed up in Leviticus 23 to verse 14. Yes, Miss Rachel. I know that uh, it says whenever there's a uh, forever in Hebrew, it would let us know if it was a temporary, uh, well, that would be the prohibition, but the forever in Hebrew means forever and ever and ever. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around that, how it would change because Hebrew tells us that forever means forever. How you get around it is you teach doctrine instead of Bible. If you say doctrine takes precedence over Bible, that's the only way to get around it. It's another argument that the majority use to say that, hey, that's written specifically to Jews and we are Gentiles. Sometimes, but then you got First Corinthians chapter five, kind of gets in the way of that. which gets in the way of that. So, like I said, we went first to Leviticus chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-one, chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-one, because that sums up all four of the first appointed times. But if we back up to verse fourteen, the last phrase is, "It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings." So twice in the first four appointed times that teach the first coming of the Lord, God says, this is forever. And then in the same chapter, verse 31 is about the fall festivals, specifically concerning the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Verse 31 says, you shall do no manner of works, which is a high Sabbath, it should be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So how long is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to be kept? Forever. Or Moses is a false prophet. Hmm. And then in chapter 23, same chapter, verse 41. Referring to the fall feasts, the three fall feasts that are summed up and referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles and includes the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles all wrapped up together. Verse 41 says, You shall keep as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. So twice in the spring feasts it says forever, twice in the fall feasts it says forever. So when somebody says, Wayne, why do you do Passover when everybody else does Easter? What do you say? You say, let's go to the scriptures and see what does the prophets say. The next point. They say, Wayne, why do you keep Saturday when everybody else does Sunday? The next question usually follows is, how do we know Sunday isn't the Sabbath day? Well, that's easy. On what day did Messiah arise? He arose on Sunday. The Gospels say he arose on the day after the Sabbath. If Sunday is the day after the Sabbath, is Sunday the day after itself? <laughs> no. 
So the day after the Sabbath, if that's Sunday, that makes Sabbath the day we call Saturday, as it was ordained from Genesis chapter 2 on. But let's go to Exodus chapter 31. You know what? You're right. I'm looking at one right in front of me. You're absolutely correct. Exodus 31. Look at other languages where you see the language. Look at other languages. Give me a language where Spanish Sabado. Spanish Sabado is Sabbath. Portuguese. Sabbath. Yeah. Because that comes from English Saturn's day. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So Exodus chapter 31, the first thing we have to see is, is this prophecy or not? Well, verse 1 says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. So where did these words come from? The mouth of the Lord. So these are words of prophecy. Go down to verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote, so we know these words came out of the lips of God. Psalm 89, 34, not a word of it will be changed. It's scripture. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from amongst his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So is the Sabbath to be kept forever? The answer is yes. Is it only for Jewish people? Because it says the children of Israel. Or is the children of Israel a broader term? It includes all those who have been grafted in, like wild olive trees grafted into a cultivated tree. Who tells us that? Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. And he tells us in Romans 11 also. Romans 11 specifically refers to the grafting in. But in Ephesians 2 he tells us that when you get saved by faith, you become part of the commonwealth of Israel. What's that? We become the seed of Abraham. Yes, that's in Galatians. Yes, I heard somebody go to a meeting. Oh, crap. I, try, I, I know what I'm trying to say. Uh, uh, rightly dividing the word. Rightly uh, dividing the word of truth. Go ahead. Rightly dividing the word of God. Okay. A lot of people, unfortunately, think that's dividing the New Testament from the Old Testament. So what exactly is dividing 
the, uh, you know, dividing the word of God? What exactly do they mean when they say that? Yeah, that means like the priests had to be so knowledgeable of the word of God that they could divide the sacrifices up into the parts that get burned on the altar versus get eaten as food versus get thrown away, that they not get any of the pieces wrong. So it means we should know the word of God so well that we don't make a mistake in how we interpret and apply it. That's what it means, right essentially. Application. Right application. Okay. Uh, what was the verse in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. After Ephesians, uh, also Exodus 12, 38 tells us that, that we are uh, the big multitude was uh, other than other people other than Israel. Yep, in Exodus 12, 38, the great mixed multitude, they were grafted in. There was not a ham side and a lamb side to the camp. That's true. But Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. But now, meaning once you've been saved, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in verse 12 it said, before you got saved, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You're no longer aliens once you get saved, but you're now fellow citizens with the saints. And then Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the seed of Abraham refers not to your physical birth, but whether or not you are saved by faith through the shed blood of our Messiah. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, which says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For as many of you as were baptized in a Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Is there another scripture in the Torah that lets us know that the Sabbath is not just for the Jewish people. Isaiah 56. That in, no, stay in the, not, Torah. No, it's not in the Torah. Because we're going to get to Isaiah 56. I just don't want to get there yet. How about Exodus chapter 20? Where the Ten Commandments are given themselves. You even say Exodus 16 because there was the Yep, in Exodus chapter 16, the mixed multitude that Rachel mentioned from Exodus 12 was grafted in, and the commandment applied to everyone, and a guy who was picking up sticks got sentenced to death, right? And they don't say, that's because he was a Jew and not one of the mixed multitude. They, didn't make that distinction. they did not make the distinction. Why? Because it says whoever. But in Exodus 20, which are the Ten Commandments, it mentions the non-Jew specifically. Start in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, ding, 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 there's the non-Jew, who is within your gates. The male and female servants may have been non-Jews, but the stranger is for sure. 
So not only is it for Jews and Gentiles, but it's also for the cattle, the animals. It's for all creation. Yeah, we're going to get to Isaiah 56. What's that? Isaiah 56 is a powerful punch. So let's just go do that right now. Let's go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 gets right to the point. Would you like to be in the Messianic kingdom or not? In Isaiah 56, we'll start in verse 1 because we have to know, is it prophecy or is it not? And it says, thus says the Lord. What does that make it? Prophecy. It says, keep justice and do righteousness for my Yeshua is about to come. That's literally what it says. My, in Hebrew, my Yeshua is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Where's Messiah referred to as the righteousness of the Lord? Adonai Zedekanan. In Jeremiah 23. Yeah. So verse 1 is, be ready. Sanctify yourselves. Clean the sin out of your lives. Get ready. Messiah is coming. Verse 2 says, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it. If you just look at the English... It looks like a man and his son. And that's not what it is. Blessed is the man. That Hebrew word is Enosh. Which is a term that's used for only Jewish people. But then it says in the son of man. That word man is Adam or Adam. Which means anyone and everyone who descends from Adam. So by saying blessed is the man who does this and the son of Adam who lays hold on it is clear God means everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So blessed, yes. Let's go on to verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. What's that Hebrew word? Nakar non-Jewish person born in a foreign land who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? Kingdom. So to the messianic kingdom when Messiah rules and reigns. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you recognize some quotes from Messiah in here? The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Who are those others? They're the believing non-Jews. The believing Gentiles. So if the Sabbath has been abolished, or if the Sabbath does not apply to Gentiles, not only is Moses a false prophet, but what about Isaiah? The one who promised the coming of Messiah, who said Messiah would suffer and die, would be buried with the rich, but raised to glory. That's not all to look at in Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 2. 
Is Isaiah chapter 2 a prophecy or not? Chapter 2 begins, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw. What does it mean, saw? He has a vision from the Lord, so it's prophecy. Verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. But latter days is not Christ. You fixed it, right? In Hebrew it says the achrit hayamim, which is the end of days, which is a term for the messianic kingdom. In a Hebrew published Bible, that's capitalized. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, recognizes this is about the messianic kingdom with Messiah on the throne. So it shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. So this is the Lord's kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, which means it's over every other nation on earth. They're all subject to Messiah. And all nations shall flow to it. Many peoples or multitudes shall come up and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, which is Jerusalem, shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So if the law does not apply any longer, what is Isaiah? A false prophet. If the law only applies to the Jews, why are all the Gentile nations coming up to Jerusalem to learn it from the Lord? Because it applies to all people. Yeah, we'll get there. Is there any place earlier in the scripture that tells us that the law applies to Jews and Gentiles alike? So let's look at Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16. That's a really good one. It's one of about a dozen or so that we could have come up with, but it's a really good one. Numbers 15. In fact, we'll start in verse 14 today and go 14 to 16. Numbers 15, starting in verse 14. And a stranger... If a stranger dwells with you, what's that stranger? A gear, a non-Jew, somebody from another land who wants to worship the Lord our God. Dwells with you, and whoever is among you throughout your generations. What's that word whoever mean? Anybody. And would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you, and for the stranger who dwells with you. That word law is what in Hebrew? Torah. The Torah applies to the Jew as well as the Gentile. This tells us that when a Gentile wants to worship God, He's to be grafted into Israel and obey God as Israel was supposed to. Where in the New Testament does it tell us that once Gentiles get saved, they should stop walking as the rest of the Gentiles do? That's Ephesians 4.17. 
But that's in the New what Testament. Yes, sir. Um, can we go back to that differentiation between in, in Isaiah 52, 52 about the, the two different um, words for man? Isaiah 56. Yeah. Right. Edmund wants um, to go back to Isaiah 56.2. What's your question, Edmund? Um, in Enosh, the first one, it says a, a, less, a less dignified um, form of man is one of the things. So I was thinking, you said it, it related specifically to the Jew. It's a word that's used in the scripture to refer to Jewish people. Just like in the New Testament, the word laos, L-A-O-S, refers specifically to Jewish people. A lot of translations seem to just put it down as person. Yep, that's why we have to look behind the translation. Okay, okay. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17. Who wrote Ephesians? Paul. Paul did. To Jews or Gentiles? Paul. <laughs> but this is addressed specifically to believers who used to be Gentiles. I say used to be because Gentile means pagan. And once you get saved, you're not pagan anymore. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Does that make it true or false? True. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So once you get saved, it's time to change the way we live our lives. That is, to start following God's commandments. Okay, but suppose the law has been abolished. What does that make Isaiah? A false prophet. Let's go to the book of Micah. In Hebrew, Micha means who is like. Short form of Michael, Michael, who is like God. Go to Micah chapter 4. Verses 1 to 2. Now it shall come to pass in thee again. Make it read end of days. The Hebrew is achari tayami. That the mountain of the Lord's house. That's the messianic kingdom. Shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills. That is, Messiah is over all kingdoms. He's Lord of lords, King of kings. And people shall flow to it. The word peoples refer to Gentile nations. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the Torah, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So if the law was abolished and Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, then Micah would be a false prophet. Because what does Deuteronomy 18 tell us about a prophet? If he's a prophet of the Lord, then every word he prophesies will come to pass. Somebody mentioned a few minutes ago I think it was you back there. Ezekiel chapter 44. In Ezekiel 43, Messiah returns to establish the kingdom. So Ezekiel 44 takes place with Messiah on the throne. 
And it helps explain in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, which says the Lord will teach the Torah. Has the Torah changed? Scripture says God's word doesn't change, but let's see. Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 23 and 24. And they, refers to the priests that are serving Messiah, and they shall teach my people. Whose people? My people, the Lord's people. The difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, that word is Torah, and my statutes in all my appointed meetings. How many of the appointed meetings? All of them. The appointed meetings are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, feast of tabernacles, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So according to the prophecy in Ezekiel, with Messiah on the throne in the kingdom, the Torah includes all the commandments, statutes, and judgments, all the appointed times of the Lord, all the Sabbath days. Kind of sums it up. It sums it up. If they're not to be kept anymore, what's Ezekiel? Mistaken. A false prophet. You know, this characterizes when in verse 23 when he says, my people, you know, that phrase just kind of jumped off the page at me because Good. if you look at my people, what is what characterizes my people according to the Lord? Those who keep my laws, my statutes, my Sabbath. Right. So notice there's nowhere in scripture where he says my people, these people over here can do this, but then this group of people over here can do this. Never. In fact, what does it say in John chapter 10? One way. One way. One shepherd, one flock. That's right. So, like, people need to chew on this stuff for a little bit. Right. Just think about it. If I'm I'm calling myself one of God's people, what does he expect of me? Right. And if you call yourself a saint, what does that mean? That means you have the faith, but you keep the commandments as well. And where do we find that? Revelation 12, 17, and Revelation 14, 12. Exactly right. So what we've established so far is if, if we're not supposed to be keeping God's commandments anymore, Moses is a false prophet, Isaiah is a false prophet, Mike is a false prophet, Ezekiel's a false prophet, and we're not but started. Well, we just have a book full of fallacies, don't we? Yeah. That's the case. We would have a book of Aesop's fables. <laughs> Okay. Well, we still have Jeremiah as a prophet. What did Jeremiah say? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. He got put down in a well, didn't he? For, yeah. for the fact that it didn't come to pass right away. <laughs> shut him up. So again, the reason we're doing all this is not to ridicule anybody's faith. When they come and say, why do you? When everybody else doesn't, well, here's why. What does the Bible say? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. We could start in 31, but 
You know what? You taught me into it. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Notice days is plural. Verse 31 begins with Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant or a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What did Messiah say about the blood that he was shedding? Was the blood of the new covenant. That's why days is plural. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. It's not like that covenant, because what was that covenant written upon? Stone. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. So this is talking about the millennial kingdom now. I will put my law, my Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts. Not on stone, which is external, but on the heart, which is internal. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is a prophecy that when Messiah returns, he's going to teach the Torah and write it on the hearts and minds of his people. If the law has been abolished, then what does that make Jeremiah? False prophet. But we still have Zechariah. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. Preachers don't realize when they say that the law's been abolished, we don't need to worry about following God's commandments anymore. They don't realize they're saying that either God is a liar or the Bible was written by a bunch of false prophets. Morning, brother. That's okay, the roads were bad. But in Zechariah 14... Would you believe Zechariah 14 is a prophecy about the day of the Lord? So it's about the return of Messiah and establishing of the Messianic kingdom on earth. Is this is the Akhari Tayyamim. This is the Akhari So we'll look at verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. What's the day of the Lord? That's that thousand year period from the rapture and the resurrection through the seven-year tribulation period, through the messianic kingdom, to the new heavens and the new earth. Is this prophecy? It is prophecy. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations. What would you and I call that? We would call it the United Nations. All the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city shall go into captivity. What is the United Nations trying to force Israel to give to the Palestinians right now? Half of Jerusalem. So we see how close this is. It says, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Revelation 19.11. We call that battle Armageddon. Verse 4, and in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. That's Ezekiel 43, the return of the Lord. So let's go down to verse 16. When we come to verse 16, the battle of Armageddon's over. 
The sheep and the goats of Matthew 25 have been judged. And Messiah is sitting on his throne in the kingdom, as it says in Ezekiel 43. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations, those nations are what? Gentile nations. Which came against Jerusalem, that was at Armageddon, shall go up from year to year to worship the king. Which king? Not Elvis. <laughs> Messiah. The Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That's just like Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, isn't it? Everyone who's left of all the nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. If we're not supposed to keep the feasts anymore, then that would make Zechariah a false prophet. Let's look also at Zechariah chapter 8. That's when the Torah is read to whom? Everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. That's in Exodus chapter, no, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Zechariah 8.23, look around the room. We are the fulfillment of Zechariah 8.23. It's us. So you can put your name on it. That's me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, what kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. In those days, days plural, so it starts before the day of the Lord. Just a little bit before, and that's where we are. Ten men, that's called a minion. From every language of the nations, the word nations there means Gentiles, shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, and it's not sleeve. The Hebrew word is kanaf, and it's the corner of the talit where the zitzit are tied. What do these fringes, these zitzit, represent? The commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, the Torah. So it says, right before the Lord returns, there's going to be a large group of Gentiles that are going to take hold of the Torah, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So it's an awakening amongst God's people that, hey, wait a minute, the law wasn't abolished. The law was forever. In a few minutes, we're going to look at just how many times it says forever, but not yet. I get ahead of myself. So if the law is abolished, then this prophecy is false because you can't grasp hold of something that doesn't exist. And that would again make Zechariah a false prophet. But we still have Daniel. So let's go to Daniel. Don't you think that Zechariah 8.23 goes right along with what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2 about the tearing down of that middle wall of separation? Zechariah 8.23 is exactly about the same as Ephesians 2, the tearing down of that middle wall of separation, which happened in Acts chapter 10, right? When God gave the vision to Peter that allowed Peter to go to the Gentiles to take the gospel message. So, you know, Paul prophesied, wrote about it, you know, 2,000 plus years ago. Yeah. And you look at Zechariah 8.23 and it says, yes, but it doesn't really start happening until the day of the Lord or when we start getting closer to the day of the Lord. 
Yeah. And that's when we're starting to see it. And we are starting to see it. How many Messianic congregations are there around the world these days? Lots and lots. Are they all Jewish people? No. It's a mixture. It's mostly a mixture. One of the Baptist preachers up in Cherry Log asked me a couple of years ago, how many Jewish people do you have in your fellowship? I said, I don't know. He said, you have to know. I said, no, I don't. It doesn't matter to me. His point was, only the Jewish people should be keeping the Sabbath and keeping the laws, and the non-Jewish people shouldn't. So he wants to know how the congregation was mixed. What does the Bible say? Does it matter? No. It does not matter. Why would yes. You take that blessing away? Why would you take that blessing away from Gentiles? Why? Because of Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. So, we're turning to Daniel now. Let's go look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Doesn't that just further widen the gap between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people when you say that Sabbath is for them, but Sunday is for us, something that God never even said is for us. Right. We're trying to tear it down, and then other people are just you know, right behind us. It puts that us. wall of separation right back up. So here we are. We're trying to tear it down, and then people are right behind us trying to build it right back yep. up. And I've told you guys this story, and it's an honest, true story, of being in Israel at Capernaum where Messiah centered his ministry in the very synagogue that he taught in. And... I was leading a group from a Methodist church. Their pastor didn't want to do it, so he said, you, you'll do it better, take them. So I took them, and I was wearing my tallit and my kippah, as Messiah would do when I was talking about that. And the tour guide, who was a 20-something-year-old young lady, ran out of the synagogue crying. I was told her, I went out, I said, Gila, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And she said, you didn't offend me. She said, all my life I've heard about Jesus, the first pope, but I never knew he was a Jew. She never heard that Yeshua was a Jew. No, and isn't that a shame that, yeah. that Yeshua, who is the Messiah, is presented to the Jewish people as a, as a, Jew, as a pope? Yeah. A lot of Jewish people look at the New Testament as a Greek book written by Greeks to Greeks about a Greek god. And therefore, to them, it's like Greek mythology. So, so the Messiah is being presented as a law-breaking pope. Right. Messiah is being presented as a law-breaking pope. And does that keep Jewish people from coming to the Lord? Yes, ma'am. Right. And so I think it's something supernatural. Oh, I agree. Stopping them from listening. They don't want to hear it. I agree. But as we started out with the scriptures before you came in, when somebody comes up and asks you why, let's be ready to give an answer. Because it's all over the Bible. So right now we're in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 25 is about the Antichrist, false messiah, or beast of Revelation 13, whichever term you prefer. And it says, as it does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
that he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, as it says in Revelation, and shall intend to, which means to try to, change the times and the law. The times refer to the feasts and festivals, like changing Passover to Easter, and the law, trying to change God's commandments. It says, then the saints shall be given into his hand from a time and times and half a time. What this means is Satan from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, has been trying to get people to break God's commandments. That same spirit of lawlessness has been from the beginning. And if we go to 2 Thessalonians, Paul tells us it's still true in his day. But as we're leaving Daniel chapter 7, if the law has been abolished and we're not to keep it anyway, why would the Antichrist in the day of the Lord be trying to abolish something that didn't exist? So that would make Daniel a false prophet. It's kind of like the belief that Yeshua came to deliver us Gentiles from the law, which we would never understand with. It's like, that does not make sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. Where did I say we're going? Second Thessalonians. Oh, that's right. Second Thessalonians. Thank you. I'm glad somebody's listening to me. But we'll get back to it. Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness. What's lawlessness? Antinomianism, right? The mystery of trying to get people to break God's commandments is already at work. He was at work in the Garden of Eden. He was at work 2,000 years ago. Do you think he's quit? No. Yep. To if, keep the Jewish people from being saved and to keep mm-hmm. the Gentile people from so keeping commandments. Yep. If Messiah was a lawbreaker, could he be the Messiah? The no. answer is absolutely not. And yet you hear people preaching about him breaking the Sabbath. Yes. As if the scribes and Pharisees were correct. Right. Yes. And claiming and, that the disciples ate pork. Yeah. They, <laughs> and make all sorts of blasphemous accusations at they do. Show me some place in the New Testament where somebody eats a slice of pork. I can see where I there can, isn't I, any. I can show you where the first death of Ham is. Yeah, I, I know. Okay. But back to Daniel. But in Isaiah 11, it says the Messiah's delight is in the law. In Isaiah 11, it says Messiah's delight is in the law. In John chapter 15, it says he kept God's commandments perfectly. So to make the allegation that he's a lawbreaker, what's the biggest thing that the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church and several others teach that just makes you sick? Transubstantiation, which says Messiah fed human flesh and human blood to the disciples before the crucifixion. If he did that, he died a sinner, and his life and death meant nothing. Yes, ma'am. You think it's in Matthew? Not sure. Good and loud. Um, I'm not sure where it is, but when uh, Messiah heals on the Sabbath, 
when Messiah heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees all get on to him, and the Pharisees all get on to him, wouldn't you rescue your animal if it fell into a bit? And they say what? And that is uh, a way sometimes I have heard it that that justifies doing things on the Sabbath. What would be a good rebuttal for that? Because he actually did the healing on the Sabbath. Is there any commandment against healing on the Sabbath? No. no. But there is a rule. It's a man-made pharisaical rule. So what they're accusing him of is breaking their rules, not God's commandments. And the preachers don't understand the difference. Um, a good place to see the difference is in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2. Unless you have an NIV or other Bible published from the heretical Westcott Hort Greek text. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity enmity is hatred that separates that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances what does the NIV leave out? Contained in ordinances. So it just says he's abolished the law of commandments. But contained in ordinances is very important because that word ordinances is dogma. D-O-G-M-A. Never referring to God's commandments, but referring to the man-made rules and regulations. And what did Messiah think about those man-made rules and regulations? Just go look at Mark 7. Yes. Right. Can you explain why why is there still will that rest separation be here when we get raptured? Will we be left behind because we don't fit their pattern? Um, how, how is that going to be resolved? I think the way it's going to get resolved is they're going to get left behind. Because the scripture says that you will know Messiah's true followers by their love one for another, meaning whether Jewish or Gentile, they still love each other as brothers. When they put up that middle wall of separation and say, you don't count, they're calling God a liar. And that's never a good thing. You're right, there's groups like Beth Hillel that allow Gentiles to come. They're just second-class citizens. But there are also congregations that Becky and I visited out in California where you're not even allowed in the door. They got a big sign on the door that if you're not both Jewish with two Jewish grandparents each, you're not welcome. That is simply wrong. Thank you. Yipper. Okay. We're back to Mark 7, actually. What's that? What disturbs me about that, Wayne, is that uh, that's a mirror image of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. And it says, wrong is wrong can be. Does God. Yeah, where does God distinguish between a believing Jew and a believing Gentile? The answer is nowhere. It says in Acts 10, he said, don't call any man unclean because there's 
Yeah, exactly. That's what Acts chapter 10 is about. But in Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7 is specifically about the rabbinic requirement to do a ceremonial hand washing called netilat yadayim. Not about whether somebody's eating pigs or not. Nobody's eating pigs. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread, that word means bread made from flour, etc. Not meat. Problem is, in the old King James, it says meat. People didn't realize that in old King James, meat meant wheat, not animal flesh. Eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That doesn't mean the law. That means the man-made rabbinic rules. But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, you, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. That's my big problem with the traditional church. Where God said, keep the Sabbath, the church said, no, no, don't do that. Do Sunday instead. Don't keep Passover, do Easter, etc., etc. They teach people to break the commandments of God to obey their man-made rules and regulations instead. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. The Messiah calls them a bunch of hypocrites. So that worries me about people. But you're right, back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 this time. Good and loud. Yes, that's exactly right. And when you say, our doctrine takes precedence over the Bible, I don't care what you say after that. You've lost me. Right. Yes, sir? You understand the outcome of it because? Became. Became. Is it accurate to say that's how the rabbinic law started? The answer is not exactly. Not exactly, no. The way it started was a result of the Babylonian captivity. The fences came in three ways, three different groups over the centuries. And they said originally, we went into captivity because we broke God's commandments. So we're going to make a bunch of fences around God's commandments so that we'll never break another commandment. So they made thousands of new commandments to try and protect us from breaking God's commandments. Then the next group made thousands more and the Tosefta, they added. So between them, they added tens of thousands of commandments. It wasn't until the time of Messiah when the priesthood was bought from Rome and the people were not following God's commandments that it became about my commandments versus God. So it didn't start out that way. 
It never does start out that way, does it? It always starts out with the best of intentions. And what does Satan do? Yeah, twists it. And that goes back to Deuteronomy 12, which says, do not add to or take away away from. what it eventually does, it just permeates like yeast. And it just grows and grows and grows. And then eventually, you have this. Yep, when you start adding to and taking away from God's commandments with the best of intentions, you're still wrong. And it leads then to error. If your attention is drawn away from God's word further and further until you're not a sheep following your shepherd at all. Right. You're in somebody else's pasture. Right. But Ellie makes a good point. That was not the original intent, but Satan has a way to twist things to our disadvantage. So on to Daniel chapter 9, because we have a long way to go yet. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is about 70 periods of seven years. So a seven-year cycle is six years in the Sabbath year. Seventy of those are verses 24 to 27. But I only want to look at verse 27. Then he, that's the false Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That seven-year period is what we call the tribulation period, so it's yet future to us. He cannot bring an end to sacrifice and offering if there is no sacrifice and offering. So if the commandments of God have been done away with and there's not to be another temple with sacrifices and offerings then as with Daniel chapter 7, Daniel again would show himself to be a false prophet. Oh, that's really bad. Turn to Matthew chapter what? 24. That's why we're going there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. End times prophecy. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, which is a part of the rebuilt temple, whoever reads, let him understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If Daniel's a false prophet and Messiah doesn't realize that and thinks he's a true prophet, what would that say about Messiah? Messiah. He would not be Messiah. Which doesn't make any sense because he's the Lord and he would have been the one who gave the prophecy to Daniel in the first place. Right, he's the one who gave the prophecy to Daniel in the first place. Provided, of course, Daniel's a true prophet, as we know him to be. But more than that, mm. let's go to Matthew chapter 5. You know, but I like how you're going through this because it teaches people deductive reasoning skills. Trying. I mean, because I feel like when it comes to stuff like this, you've heard all these 
teachings about how the law is going to abolish your whole life. Yeah. But then if you sit down and just really think, you know, just deductively like this, okay, this person would be a false prophet, this person would be, and then when you start just knocking down those dominoes, you're left with a book of fallacies. Yeah. So if the law has been abolished, then we can throw the Bible in the trash and go back to living a life of sin because there is no future anyway. I'm not recommending that to anyone. Okay. Okay. Let's go look at Matthew 5, verses 17 and following. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That Greek word is plerosai. It means to fully explain. How do we know that? That it means to fully teach, to fully explain, to build up our understanding. Keep a finger here and go to Romans 15, 19, where the very same word is used by the Apostle Paul. A few years after Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. In Romans 15, 19, it ends with, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. That's the same word. I have fully preached. So if we put that back into Matthew 5.17, I did not come to destroy, but to fully teach. That gives the correct understanding. And go on to verse 18. Verse 18 is the one that's really key here. For assuredly. What does that mean? For assuredly. It's all men. It's really true. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Have heaven and earth passed away yet? No. How do you know? We're here. Jump up and down. That's right. Stand up and jump up and down and see. It's still here. But heaven and earth will pass away in Revelation chapter 21, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Are these words of prophecy? They are. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot the Hebrew letter Yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or one tittle, which is a piece of a letter. So not the smallest letter or even a piece of a letter will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This is a different Greek word. This is genitai, and it means till everything prophesied comes to pass. So out of Messiah's own words, not the smallest letter or piece of a letter would pass away until all prophecy has been fulfilled and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. The book is complete. The book is complete. So if the law has been abolished, then Messiah is a false prophet. If Messiah is a false prophet, we're in deep trouble. Yes, ma'am. So um, in, I've looked at different translations, and this actually has to, this is the, called the Orthodox Jewish the Orthodox Jewish version of Matthew. Okay, go right. ahead. And it says uh, that last word on, in 17 is complete, and the last word in 18 is accomplished. So okay. I don't, I don't know if you, you know, what, you, what you would think about that. I know other translations use fulfilled. In the, yeah, in our English, they use fulfilled in both places to try and make you think they're talking about the same thing. And that Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection fulfilled them, therefore they went away. But that's not at all what is being said here. 
And verse 19 confirms that. Whoever, which means Jew or Gentile, makes no difference. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments. What does the word these refer back to? The Torah in verse 18. And teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If the law has been abolished, why would doing and teaching non-existent commandments make one great in the kingdom of heaven? That goes back to Daniel 12. It, something else. In verse 18, if that word for assuredly means amen. It is amen. And amen has to do with faith. Messiah is saying, by faith you need to believe this. Right, by faith you need to believe this. So like your, your faith will be strengthened if you believe that the law is still in effect until the new heavens and the new earth. Correct. So go back to Daniel 12 and see what Daniel is telling us about Daniel. Yes, ma'am. I tell you, in verse 19, growing up in the church, that is confusing about the least and the greatest in the kingdom because you think, oh, we're still in the kingdom. Yeah, it is confusing. Yeah. It goes on then to talk about the scribes and the Pharisees and how they're not in the kingdom at all which is what it's all referring to. Okay, we know that. So Daniel 12, verse 3. Daniel 12, verse 1 is about the tribulation period. Verse 2 is about the resurrections. Verse 3 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So those who turn many from lawlessness to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. That's what Messiah is referring to as the greatest in the kingdom. But you know, that task is very difficult when you, like she was talking about, like when you try to tell people about the Torah and it's not abolished, they automatically start building those walls up and they do not want to hear it. It makes it very difficult. Makes it very difficult. There are some people who want to hear it. Exactly. Most do not. Right. And so that's why Zechariah says only ten men from each nation. It's like a small hole. Yeah. What did Messiah say about how many kinds of hearts? There's four different Four kinds, and only one of them wants to hear. You know, and that's sad because like when you start talking about these things, like you can tell right away if they want to hear it or if it's just kind of like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does the scripture say about not casting your pearls before swine? Yeah. But I'm going to keep teaching it as long as there's people who want to hear it. So let's go to Matthew 24 again, to a little farther down the page. They better be careful because they're responsible for what they hear. Teachers are held to a higher standard. Yeah. You're exactly correct. I think it was the very first day I stepped into the pulpit 30 years ago or so that somebody said, are you trying to tell us we're supposed to be keeping God's commandments? And all I could say was, that's what it said. 
And they were like, mm, I don't think so. I said, well, let's read it again. That's what it says. But in Matthew 24, we read about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, which is in the temple. But if you look at verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. If the Sabbath was abolished 2,000 years ago, why would Messiah warn people in the day of the Lord to pray that the flight not be on the Sabbath? Did somebody forget to tell him the commandments were going to be abolished? Of course not. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Words of prophecy. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, what? Will by no means pass away. But if the commandments are gone, and Messiah gave us the commandments, then what would that make Messiah? A false prophet. Oh, how about John? Was John a prophet? Let's look at Revelation 12. Revelation 12, verse 17. This takes place at the middle of the tribulation period, which is yet future. And the dragon, that's Satan, was enraged with the woman, that's Israel, went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Those are the believers in Messiah, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. What if the commandments of God have been abolished? What does this make John? False prophet. Look at Revelation 14, 12. He doesn't just make the boo-boo once if he's a false prophet. He really steps in it. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. How does he define a saint? Those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Yeshua. So either the commandments of God are still in effect or he's erred again. People fail to understand or consider 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 14 to 16. Where Peter warns us that you can misinterpret what the Apostle Paul said to the point that it will lead you to the lake of fire. It says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, or in Hebrew, tamim. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people 
twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So Peter says, if you are untaught, if you do not fully understand the Old Testament scriptures, you can misunderstand Paul and twist his teachings to their own destruction, which means right into the lake of fire. That paper, of course, is out on the website. And I could have gone to all the other prophets, but I figured that's probably a smattering enough to make you stop and think. But I want us just to look at Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's how many times it tells us this is a statute forever. Let's go to Exodus chapter 27. These are all words of prophecy. Exodus 27, verse 21. Let me give you a chance to find it. Exodus chapter 27, verse 21. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. That's talking about doing the services in the tabernacle, later the temple. They're to be done for how long? Forever. Exodus 28, 43. But then they haven't been done for 2,000 years. Because there hasn't been a temple. When the temple is rebuilt, they will begin again. So it's not that the commandment ceased, it's that the ability to perform it was waiting. Yeah. Exodus 28:43. They, that is the sacred garments, shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It should be a statue forever to him and his descendants after him. The next temple has not yet been built, but all the garments of the priests were done. They had to be done first. Because can the priest go in and minister without the priestly garments? No, no because it's a statute forever. Exodus 29, verse 28. Talking about the offerings. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. Exodus 30, verse 21. That was Exodus 29, verse 28. I'm sorry if I got ahead of you. This next one is Exodus 30, verse 21. So they shall wash their hands and their feet. That's talking about the labor that's there by the altar. Lest they die. 
and it shall be a statue forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So they had to recreate the labor before they could recreate the temple because they must wash their hands and feet when they minister to the Lord or they will die. Leviticus chapter 6. Verse 18. Talking about the grain offerings. It says, All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statue forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. A statute for ever. Leviticus 6.22. Why is it I'm not going to go over every occasion of forever in the Torah? Because there's only 15 more minutes. Yeah, Leviticus 6.22. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statue forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 34. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. These are the things that Daniel 9.27 says the false Messiah is going to put an end to at the middle of the tribulation period. Leviticus 7.36 The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 9 wasn't that last, last one referring to all the previous before? Yeah. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, So we know it comes directly from the Lord. Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations. What happened at the start of Leviticus 10? His two sons went in and burned profane fire and died. So, yep. So Aaron's told, you and your descendants after you, don't you come into my sanctuary drunk, lest you die. Leviticus 10.15 the thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. Just one more page of them, then we'll go on to the next topic. Leviticus chapter 16. 
Leviticus chapter 16 is about the Day of Atonement. Verse 31. Let me give you a chance to find it. We'll start in 29 for context. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, that is to fast, and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger, that's the non-Jew, who dwells with you, who dwells among you. Statue for how long? Forever. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. This is the first time, if I understand these others correctly, that it wasn't referring to the priests and what the priests should do and what the priests should receive. Right, this is about the people. So when it switched to this, we changed who has to do this stuff. Right. So this is the requirement to fast on... Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And you know it's not talking about the priest because it says, or the stranger who dwells among you. Right. right. If people had the argument, these statutes are forever only for the priest. That's why I didn't stop there on the first page. Yeah. Leviticus 17, verse 7. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons... That is, behind every idol there's a demon. After whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. And of course, Leviticus 23, verses 14, 21, 31, and 41, we already looked at. So we go to Leviticus 24, verse 3. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 3. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it. That's the menorah. From evening until morning before the Lord continually, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. Have they built the menorah for the next temple? They have. How many of you have seen it with your own hands? It's huge. It is absolutely beautiful. And it's on public display, surrounded by glass so thick, it's absolutely bulletproof. And if you ever picked up a rock to throw at it, you find how many soldiers there are. In hiding. In hiding, yeah. Numbers chapter 18. And again, this is just a smattering of the forevers in the Torah. Numbers chapter 18. Verse 
Numbers 18, verse 23. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. In Numbers 19, verse 10. This is about the red heifer. Have you seen anything in the news lately about the red heifers? Oh, they have so many red heifers in Israel now that are absolutely pure. They've been inspected by the rabbis. They say they're absolutely pure and ready for sacrifice when the time comes. I shouldn't say sacrifice because they're not sacrificed. They're slaughtered. They're slaughtered on the Mount of Olives, not on the Temple Mount. And they're burned with what? With cedar, which represents pride. With hyssop, which represents humility. And with shiny or blood-colored cloth. To teach us that when we come out of our pride and approach God in humility through the blood of Messiah, then we who were unclean can be made clean. And they, is it just that they mix the ashes with the water for the purification? They mix the ashes with the water and then use the water to sprinkle the people. That's the, that's the only purpose it has. That's the only purpose it has, is to cleanse you from corpse uncleanliness. So that's why they keep saying, we have to have the red heifers before we can rebuild the temple. Where are the red heifers? And now they have red heifers coming out of their ears. They really do. And apparently that water can make really good wine. And that water can make really good wine. Messiah's first miracle in the book of John is at the wedding of Cana. And Mary says, he can make wine. Go ask him. He tells him to take which vessels? The vessels from the waters of the purification, which are from the ashes of the red heifer. And that's the pots that he makes the wine in out of the water. How is that a picture? The sprinkling is to make us clean. And the wine is a symbol of joy. So when we come out of our pride and humble ourselves before the Lord and are cleansed through the blood of Messiah, then we enter into the joy of the Lord. What a picture is that? So Numbers chapter 19 verse 10 says, And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to thee stranger, the non-Jew, who dwells amongst them. Is that referring to the whole process of the red heifer? Yeah, the whole process of the red heifer. Yep. That's why even today, so many thousands of years later, they still say, we need the red heifer before we can start the temple services. Yeah, that's the mystery of the red heifer. It makes that which was clean unclean and that which was unclean clean, which is really strange. Is this, is this implying that um, a foreigner might be having this duty? Because it says, uh, to the stranger, so a foreigner might be gathering the ashes? 
No, it means that even the foreigners must be sprinkled with the waters to the ashes of the red heifer before they can go into the temple. Even in the kingdom. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. When Messiah returns, one of the things he does is to sprinkle us. The words used are referring to the waters of the ashes of the red heifer. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Twenty-four through twenty-seven. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's the water, the ashes of the red heifer. And and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. What is that? That's the new covenant. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Of course, if the commandments have been abolished, then that makes Ezekiel a false prophet. But we've already seen that from Ezekiel 44. Those all use the phrase statute forever. Let's just look at a few of the other forevers. Go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 12. This helps us understand what God means by forever. Have any of you ever seen a rainbow? That's Genesis 9, 12. Genesis 9, 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. It shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This promise, this covenant was made how long ago? The beginning, 6,000 years ago. Oh, not quite 6,000 years ago, because it's at the flood. But about 5,000 years ago, and every time you see a rainbow, you know that God's word still stands. Exodus 29.9. Exodus 29.9. Exodus 29, verse 9. And you shall gird them, that is your sons, with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. That's where the keeper comes from. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. What's that mean, a perpetual statute? Forever. 
So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Exodus 31, 16. Do you get the idea why when you go up to a Jewish person and say, let me tell you about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, so you can quit following all of God's commandments, they look at you like you got two heads. Exodus 31.16 says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a what? Perpetual covenant. What does perpetual mean? Without end. Numbers 19.21 Well, do you see why we didn't try and put this in the last two or three minutes of last week's teaching? Okay. We're not quite through yet. Numbers 19, verse 21. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification, talking about the waters of the red heifer, shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. It's what kind of statute? Perpetual. You touch it and you're unclean to leave it. It's sprinkled on you and you're clean. Right. Yeah. It touches you, you're clean. You touch it, you're unclean. Yeah. Deuteronomy 5.29. That's why it's called a mystery. But if you think about it, it's like if you touch it, it's like you doing the work. Yeah. When it touches you, you're receiving it. That's exactly right. Can we cleanse ourselves? The answer is no. Deuteronomy 5.29. Deuteronomy 5 is about the Ten Commandments. But this is the Lord. You can almost hear the weeping in his voice. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it may be well with them with their children forever, that they would always keep all my commandments. God intended them to be temporary, right? No. Two more. And then we're done. Second Kings, Second Kings, chapter seventeen. And you guys can see we could go on and on and on, but the mind cannot absorb more than the derrier can withstand. Second Kings, seventeen, verse thirty-seven. Second Kings chapter 17 verse 37 says, And the statutes, the ordinances, and the law, the Torah, and the commandments he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. This time forever is not the best translation. It literally says, Kol Hayamim, all of the days. Which means every day, so long as there's a day. You shall not fear other gods. The capital He, talking about God, not Moses, right? Psalm 119 is our last reference. Psalm 119. The whole Psalm 119 is about keeping the Torah. But we want to look at verse 44. 
We could look at the verse in Psalm 119, which is verse 89. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. But that would just be cheating to throw that in there. So we'll just look at verse 44. David says, so I shall keep your law continually forever and ever. That would make David a false prophet. If that was not true. Like I said, we could go through and show each and every prophet. But I think that's enough that somebody who would actually sit down and listen might go, well, maybe the commandments weren't abolished then, huh? But that brings us to the close of our Bible study. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1.